All right, so welcome again today. And I, I want to start by asking if uh, anybody had uh, memorized anything from this sutta, given that it's a sutta about uh, why the hymns are remembered or not, I was figuring that we would have all been able to remember something. So if anybody um, wants to volunteer, Leanne, I saw your hand first. Um, I wasn't very ambitious, but I have the um, intro to the Wealth um, Sutta. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, back to the one that we did previously. Great. And so, what because, oh no, because there are five kinds of wealth. What five? The wealth of faith, the wealth of virtuous behavior, the wealth of learning, the wealth of generosity, and the wealth of wisdom. And I, I find it uh, most compelling that it's the wealth of generosity. Mm -hmm. Nice. So. And it's just nice to have that list right there in your mind. Yeah. Nice. Val, thank you. You're muted, Val. <clears throat> I'll, I'll do as much as I can remember. <laughs> um, furthermore, when your heart is not fit, when your heart, oh boy, here I go. <laughs> furthermore, when your heart is not overcome by restlessness or remorse, then even hymns that are not long practice arise. Even hymns that are not long practice, it's not come into being. I, I'm sorry, spring to mind. Even hymns that are, that are not long practice spring to mind, let alone hymns that are long practiced. Mm -hmm. uh, suppose a bowl of water was not stirred by wind churning um, rippling is another one um, then a person who's a person with with clear mindful you know what i can't do it <laughs> sorry <laughs> anyway okay. i had fun uh working on it and the reason and i know quite a bit of it when i'm out walking but the reason i liked it is i like doing the part where your heart is not overcome or mired mm -hmm. in something and that's what we're talking about today uh, yeah rather than being stirred up. And so that's why. Right. And also the restlessness um, also spoke to me, so. And that's the way to do it, is that we choose the part that <laughs> is the most relevant. And both of you uh, so far have commented on the, you know, the part that was most meaningful. And that's, uh, that's how we actually, it makes it easier to memorize, let's say it that way. Great, thank you, Val. That was really good, actually. <laughs> Does anyone else um, want to offer anything? Oh, Carol, okay. From the very beginning, I just liked um, what is the reason why sometimes even hymns that are long practiced don't spring to mind, let alone those that are not practiced, short and sweet. And I, I, I like that they call them hymns. And um, yeah, it happens to me too, so. <laughs> yeah, we can just 
keep in mind that there are causes and reasons for that. And, and that does happen. Our memories are pretty unreliable in this regard. Great. Um, anyone else want to offer anything? Not required at any time, but I love that some of you did. Prativa is jumping on and off. Okay. Bruce, is your hand up? No. Okay. Then let's um, then let's go on with where we had gotten. We're we're on um, Sutta five. Point one ninety three in the Anguttara Nikaya, AN five one ninety three, um, and we're going to finish it up today. We'd actually gotten through all the major, the major similes, which is the point of this sutta, and then we'll be able to go on to MN four, as I sent in the email. And anyone who's new today, which I think we have one, um, you're now going to be on the email list. Um, I think I have your email because you sent me an email before, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, that'll be the way to keep up with the suttas. And don't worry that it doesn't matter. We read them all. So, <laughs> okay. So um, this sutta, AN 5.193, is about why we don't remember things and why we do remember things. And the um, the person asking is a Brahmin, and so he asks about these this word hymns, which in the Pali is manta or Sanskrit mantra. So it has to do with the Brahminical practice that they did at that time. But the Buddha uses it as an opportunity to teach about what he wants to teach about, his philosophy of uh, or his practices. Uh, and so he gives a teaching on the five hindrances and how when the mind is overcome by various hindrances, uh, then it's hard to remember things. Things don't spring to mind. Let's be clear about that. So things that we maybe even have memorized or practiced aren't available to us in certain ways. So he's actually making a statement about how our mind works and how, and I think we've all experienced this, uh, uses this framework that's, you know, from, from this other culture, but I certainly have had the experience where when my mind was agitated in some way, if I was angry or scared or just restless, um, I, I didn't have available to me ideas that I could have. I, I would look back and say, I, you know, I could have just tried such and such, or I could have just remembered such and such, but at the moment I couldn't. You know, the moment that you find that you're locked out of your car, those first five seconds, you don't have 10 ideas about what to do about that. <laughs> There's the, you know, the sense of, um, and so in this case, of course, he's not referring to mundane things about solving problems of your life, but about whether teachings are going to come to mind, which is, uh, and, and, you know, maybe we've all had the reverse also, is that we're in the middle of something and suddenly appears in our mind a teaching that we've heard on a retreat or the Dharma talk or something we've read, and it's just what we need at that moment. I don't know how this happens, but it does sometimes, and usually that's when the mind is clear in some way. And so we have these images about the bowl of water in this sutta. Um, when the bowl of water is affected in various ways, we don't see our reflection in it clearly. So we've been through the um, first, this first similes. Does anyone want to give just a summary of the five um, ways that the water gets affected? Just name them off. Anyone? Anyone remember these? 
<laughs> I'm pointing toward the teaching of the sutta. Um, okay, Carol. Well, when desire is working, um, the water, it's as if the water is dyed yeah. a beautiful color. And if um, it's aversion that's bubbling and um, or windswept or rippling, rippling, all right. Um, or, oh no, that's really boiling. Yeah, that, right? Boiling. Aversion is boiling. Boiling. And then restlessness is more windswept and rippling. Windswept, yeah. And um, doubt, it, oh no, uh, restlessness, uh, sloth and torpor, muck and mire, muck, is that mucky? That's mucky the one muck. that has plants across the top, algae, yeah, so, duckweed, <laughs> and all that. And then doubt is cloudy. Murky and placed in the dark, yeah. Yeah, great. So these are all ways that the water gets affected such that we can't remember such things. So now um, we have, and Val already gave us a preview uh, for, from what she memorized. We have the section on why the hymns are remembered, uh, as it's called. Um, and they're all uh, inverses of what we read, but let's just make sure that we uh, go through um, would somebody read that first section about when the mind is not obsessed and oppressed or not mired in uh, sensual desire? Would someone read that, that paragraph? Bruce. I can do it. <clears throat> there is a time when your heart is not overcome and mired in sensual desire, and you truly understand the escape from sensual desire that has arisen. At that time, you truly know and see your own good, the good of another, and the good of both. Even hymns that are long unpracticed spring to mind, let alone those that are practiced. Suppose there's a bowl of water that is not mixed with dye, such as red lac, turmeric, indigo, and or rose matter. A person with good eyesight checking their own reflection would truly know it and see it. In the same way, when your heart is not overcome and mired in sensual desire, even hymns that are long unpracticed spring to mind, let alone those that are practiced. Yeah, very good. Thank you. So it's just the negation of the other one. You know, it says it's not died, and therefore one can see uh, one's reflection clearly. They would know and see as it really is uh, the reflection. And then the others are the same. There's um, a bowl of water that is not heated over a fire, not bubbling and boiling. I'm sorry, I'm using the Bhikkhu Bodhi version because that's what I have here in the book, um, but it will be similar in the others. And then there's um, you know, one that is not covered over with water plants and one that is not churned by the wind, ripplets and wavelets and one, um, and interestingly, the last one has a positive. It says a bowl of water that is clear, serene, and limpid placed in the light. At least that's what it says on mine for the uh, inverse of doubt. Um, and so we have in all cases the sense that the water has become clear. There's this clarity to it. Something that was disturbing it or changing it 
has gone away and leaving it pure and clear. So the the nice thing here, the kind of lesson that I, one of the lessons I take is that we can, we can all relate maybe to these um, images of the hindrances as something that would arise in our practice. We would, you know, we can feel the boiling of anger, but we're also encouraged to notice that there's a feeling associated with not having a hindrance. There's a feeling associated with uh, not being caught up or having that end in some way. And so we're given a nice positive image also of, of clarity and purity and ease of reflection. Does this, um, is, is this something also familiar from your practice? Do you notice when things aren't there? Yeah, I see some nods. Um, and also a few raised eyebrows. <laughs> That's, and this is normal in that um, the point I'm, I'm aiming toward, and you can check for yourself, is that we're more, it's easier for us to notice what's wrong or not working in the mind. It's more common that we sit down and say, oh, I'm tired, I'm irritated, I'm afraid, whatever it is. Um, and when that ends, we kind of rush to go on to the next thing that's wrong. It's like, oh, all right, I'm not so, I'm a little calmer now, but boy, my knee is starting to hurt. <laughs> you know, it's like, when did we notice what it was like when the, the mind got calmer? Did we notice the ending of that initial restlessness when we sat down, for example? Um, not because, you know, I'm a, positive thinker well I am in some ways but and I and I want us all to focus on what's you know what's good and positive and only look at that it's not a you know it's not a turning away from the totality of how things are but it's just a little reminder that the mind doesn't always notice absences uh, and this is actually an important part of practice it's actually a profound part of practice to start noticing absence it's important Actually, in fact, the third foundation of mindfulness, I see your hand there, Bruce. Um, the third foundation of mindfulness, we notice whether the mind is affected by, say, anger or not affected by anger. We're actually asked to sit with and notice, oh, my mind is currently not affected by anger. Like, for example, right now, your mind not, might not be particularly affected by anger. Uh, do you know what that feels like, a non-angry mind? It's good to know that because <laughs> Nibbana doesn't have any of those things in it. So we would have to be able to recognize this somehow. All right, Bruce. Yeah, just a, just a little anecdote from my own experience. I was a diagnostic radiologist uh, before I retired many years ago. And uh, one thing that became very clear as a radiologist that it was much, I, so I think we're hardwired in this way. It was much easier to notice something that was present that shouldn't have been present than it was to notice something that was missing. For example, if you looked at a chest x-ray and you saw a lump in the lung if that was there, right to that's that. going to catch your eye right away. But could you notice that there was a portion of a rib that's missing that was eaten up by a metastatic cancer or something? It's much, much harder to do that. So I think we're hardwired in that way. Yeah, we're looking for that. Well, we're interested in figuring out how to make things better for ourselves, and that involves finding what's wrong and changing it. So, um, yeah, interesting. Any other comments along these lines? That was a great one. Pratiba. Uh-oh. Oh, there you are. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to relate and, and 
in that happened in that last online retreat that we had um, with Gil, actually. Um, I was sitting one time and I noticed that about halfway through the sit, I tend to get restless and I, my mind wants to go and move around and there's always something that comes in mind that's, oh, I really need to go and check on or whatever. And, and I noticed that and then I said, no, sit, Pratibha, just sit, just stay. And I, you know, insisted that I stay. And so I sat and I kept sitting in with the restlessness. And then, then 10 or 15 minutes later, I noticed, oh, wow, now the mind, it, the restlessness is gone. And now the mind feels much calmer and much stabler. And so it was really a, a, and a moment of a realization that, oh, yeah, things really do change if you just... <laughs> You can ride that one out. <laughs> ride it out. Yeah, just riding it out. Anyway, that was nice. That's great. That's a great example. Okay, um, Evie, I saw your hand next, and then Leanne. Well, so I don't know if it was because of, I mean, I think I would have had a positive experience anyway. I don't know if this image would have come to mind if we hadn't just read these uh, this material last week, but I was in a... I was meditating the other day and the instruction was at some point the words were, um, you know, let it settle, let things settle, um, leave it alone. And like, suddenly I was, I just like, well, I did see it, but it also just felt like it was inside me, this like clear pool and these really pretty rocks, like at the bottom. Like it was like, it was absolutely this image, at least one version of this image of really a very completely calm and clear. I wasn't, although I wasn't looking in and seeing myself, like I wasn't seeing my face or anything. It was just like placid and also really beautiful. Like I could see all these really pretty, um, I mean, they weren't that special, but they just were really pretty colored rocks at the bottom. And ever since that happened, I've been able to go back there like numerous times, like intentionally, um, I don't know if I'm grasping, but I mean, just sort of a little bit of a nudge and I can go back there, not always obviously, but it's been a really lovely uh, sort of, I don't know, imaginary anchor. <laughs> this is interesting. You might want to read um, Majumanikaya 39, uh, particularly the end of it. Okay. So MN39. Yep. Um, Leanne, and then Jill. Jill can't see the screen, so she, Leanne had her hand up earlier, and then I got a note from Jill that she wants to comment. So after Leanne. Go ahead, Leanne. Uh, well, like uh, Evelyn, um, there's been times when my meditation has been strong, and there's this, it's actually a, not just peaceful, but even joyous um, feeling, and it's really it's quite positive, but then it's like, and I started grasping toward it, a little too restless, but um, it's... That's the difficulty, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> it? But the other thing I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, it, it's really common in the, um, the suttas to say the negative of what something, it's not this, it's not that, and it's rare to have it be, you know, but this is what it would be when describing the uh, jhanas it, it does you know this is mm -hmm. your yeah, experience likely to be and i noticed in the um in our reading here in the first one and central desire 
It said, at that time, you truly know and see your own good and the good of another and the good of both, which was, it's very interesting. I don't think it did it in any other um, hindrances, but um, we have that. No, it says that for all of them. Oh, it does. It oh, it just got, it just got, yeah. Okay. Um, so, which, okay. Because it doesn't exactly seem to match with central desire, but it, it, um, it, it does match with all the hindrances really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it's implying that we just, yeah, we, we, we lose access to the heart qualities as well as to wisdom. Kind of the implication. Thank you. And then Jill. Hi, everybody. I can see you. You just can't see oh, me. Oh, okay. You just I'm don't have a, video. Yeah, okay, I'm got on a it. phone that doesn't seem to want to do video. Okay. Um, a couple comments about the absence of things, noticing the absence of things. It is much more difficult, but... I was on a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho a long time ago, and I remember thinking after it was over that the, it seemed like the most important and best parts of his talks were the pauses. Hmm. I was really serious about that. It wasn't, you know, joking. The other thing to, to say about it is that I just was reading in a blog today about creativity and chaos, that there are about three musicians, I'm remembering Mozart was one, and there were two others who I don't recall who said, music is not the notes, it's the silence in between. Mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then there was one other comment just about in art, there's a lot about negative space. What's yes. not there? So I think that these are all examples of um, how important the absence it's not really an absence but we'll we could call it an absence of things is and they can be found in the most ordinary experience constantly constantly, constantly. yep yeah the end of a breath and before the start of the next one yeah a bird yeah. a bird sound that suddenly ceases mm -hmm. anything thank you jill okay val well, Jill's comment just reminded me of a meditation we'd done, did a number of times in this one sangha uh, called The Space Between. And it's uh -huh. actually meditation working with that. For instance, it, the most easy, one of the clearest ways to think of it just right in the moment is you're doing a meditation through, throughout the whole body. It's a body meditation. But for instance, you're trying to sense as you're meditating, you're sensing the space between your fingers or the space between your toes or the space between your lower lip and your upper lip or the tongue and the roof of the mouth or whatever. So it's, it's actually meditating on the spaces uh, in between. Nice. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> it's a training because we're so, like Bruce said, we're so conditioned to just look at the things. Um, we have to sometimes deliberately encourage our mind to see what, see these other things, the spaces or the silences or the stillness instead of the movement. It's a good, good training for the mind. Uh, okay, so then, um, then we get to the end of the sutta, and um, you know, the it kind of summarizes. These are important points to keep reflecting on if you find them interesting. By the way, and I just want to read this part that I think I don't know if. Um, did Sujato fill in all of the last paragraph or was it, did it have dot, dot, dots? 
It has dot, 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 dot. It has dot, dot, dot. Okay. So I wanted to read what that paragraph is because that's a stock paragraph um, where somebody takes refuge. So he's given this teaching to the Brahmin uh, and uh, his name is Sangarava. And his response is to say, I'll read the whole thing because it's not there. Excellent, Master Gotama. And this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's rendering. Excellent, Master Gotama. Excellent, Master Gotama. Master Gotama has made the Dhamma clear in many ways as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the darkness so those with good eyesight can see form. I now go for refuge to Master Gotama, to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Let Master Gotama consider me a lay follower who from today has gone for refuge for life. So it's quite um, formal, shall we say. Um, and we don't say the refuges exactly in that way. Uh, modern, it's been changed a little bit. But um, I, want, I just pointed out a little bit as, a, as an important piece of the suttas is that there's often for lay people, sometimes uh, the lay person gets inspired by what the Buddha says and spontaneously uh, takes refuge in this way. Um, it, what's interesting is that the Buddha never offers refuge to people. He <laughs> refuge ceremony, like we all do at the beginning of a retreat. Um, he never, uh, and that's not something that he sort of grants to people. But if they do it spontaneously, you know, he, he lets it happen. He doesn't object. But it's interesting to note, maybe, that these expressions of devotion um, are just presented in this way, kind of straightforwardly, like some, some people who heard something from the Buddha had this response, um, never offered, never praised by the Buddha, etc. So it's something to reflect on, because we can feel that sometimes, you know, on retreat, we'll have these upwellings of faith or, or devotion in some way. And this is meant to capture in some sense that the person expresses, oh, I can see something that I couldn't see before. Everything makes sense. You know, he's turned upright what was overthrown. Does anyone ever have the feeling I do that, you know, I did at the beginning of my practice in particular, that like, finally, I found something that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it sort of ordered my universe in certain ways. Not everyone has this experience, but these images, these are again images of lamps and things being turned upright and showing the way, uh, are meant to, to be evocative of our experience. So I think it's, <laughs> Jill's giving us the thumbs up. So yes, that resonates for her too. Um, yeah, <laughs> claps. Oh, I like these icons, these are fun. I have to say, I've been exploring all the icons on my phone because I'm in a little, um, I'm in a group of people right now that's texting each other every day for a little practice that we're doing. And people are including these um, icons. And so I've been looking through all the icons and there's like pages and pages of screens, screens of them on my phone. I have to admit, I can't understand what all of them are. Uh, they're sort of interpretive, <laughs> some of them, but uh, it's fun to try to figure out, like, how can I capture what I'm trying to say, my little sentiment that I'm feeling in, you know, two little images that are so small that people over 50 can't read them. So anyway, um, okay. Are there any more comments on this sutta? I think we've done a, uh, a bit emoji. 
um, I think we've done a pretty good job on it. There's a lot in there. It's always going to be on these suttas where it feels like, well, we talked about it and a lot of profound things come up and then, gosh, we just have to go on to the next sutta. But that's how it is. Keep reading these. Um, is there more to say at this point on this, this one? Okay, great. Um, so that sutta was pretty focused on images. That was why I chose it, is that it has these images. And I like that a lot of what came out uh, was that people could identify these things in their practice. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I felt that. It makes sense to me in an experiential way. I think that's the point of such images. So, uh, but now we're gonna go on to one that's rather different. Um, to this one called the Baya Bhairava Sutta, Fear and Dread. Sorry for the title, um, that's what it literally translates as. It's not really a scary sutta, um, but that's the title of it. And does everybody have, um, or at least most people have the sutta in front of them? You can find it on Sutta Central, or it's in this book. I'm, I'm a diehard book fan, so I'm always gonna use the book when I can. Um, but anyway, so this sutta is a uh, more. What's sorry, the comment. what's the number? In it's Majjhimanikaya four. So it'll be in the first section, the mula, whatever. When you get to the three sections of the Majjhima, and it's sutta number four. Okay, MN four. Okay. MN four, fear and dread or Baya Bhairava. Um, so the background, uh, just a little bit about this sutta. Um, this is one of the suttas where the Buddha talks about his own enlightenment in the first person. There are a few of them, um, more than one, and they're interesting to read. Maybe we'll read another one at some point. Um, but this is one of them, and I, I happen to like this one. It has, you know, it has some things in it that were, you might raise your eyebrows at, but we'll get to those as we go along. Uh, and it has some really interesting stuff also. And it also has some very classical things in here, like the three knowledges at the end, which we'll get to. Um, but in the meantime, it also has kind of a story element. And the way that uh, these suttas that are more narrative style, like this one. A lot of the Majjhima is narrative style. You can start to learn what the different collections are about. Um, this collection, the Majjhima, is supposed is considered a, um, a handbook for new monastics. <laughs> That's probably why these were collected. So the, all the major themes of the Buddha's teachings are in these suttas. You could get all the major ones from reading the Majjhima, and they're mostly presented as stories or at least narratives. So they're a little engaging. You know, so it's nice for somebody who needs to learn uh, all, the, all the teachings. Um, and this one, like many that are stories, that's what I started to say, have... Uh, what's called a story within a story or a sandwich kind of framework. And there'll be a, an initial scene uh, that sets the stage. And then the Buddha, then there's the bulk of the sutta where the Buddha gives his teaching and he expounds something. And then at the end, you flash back to the scene and kind of close it up. And so there's these two ends and the teaching in the middle. 
that one model will get you through a lot of these narrative suttas. <laughs> They're not all like that, but that's a, a common one, and this one is like that. So let's begin with this uh, with the setup. So um, would somebody please start reading um, maybe the first couple, the first uh, the first three paragraphs. Somebody do those. Richard. Thank you. Uh, so this is the Sujato translation. Okay. So have I heard. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati's, Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's monastery. Then the Brahmin Janasoni went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side and said to the Buddha, Master Gotama, those gentlemen who have gone forth from the lay life to homelessness out of faith in Master Gotama have Master Gotama to lead the way help them out and give them encouragement. And those people follow Master Gotama's example. One more paragraph. That's so, Brahman. Everything you say is true, Brahman. Okay, great. Um, so we have this setup with this, so there's again a Brahmin. Remember the Sangharava was also a Brahmin and this is a Brahmin named Janu Soni. Um, the Brahmins were the hereditary priest uh -huh. class, the hereditary religious people uh, in that society. And they spent a lot of time memorizing the Vedas and um, they had a whole different tradition. They did a lot of rituals and ceremonies and so forth. They, they also held power through having all of that. Um, but they're, they're often kind of curious about who this Buddha guy is. And there are a lot of conversations with him. This one doesn't go through it, but the Brahman Janusoni, and there's a reference in the Bhikkhu Bodhi version um, that tells a little bit about him. I think that's what the reference says. Anyway, uh, I happen to know from other suttas, Janusoni appears in several of them. He was known for um, every, everything about him was white. He had white clothing. He rode in a white chariot drawn by white horses. Um, this was kind of his... Uh, uh, trademark in the world, his brand, is that everything was pristine white. Now you can imagine in ancient India, a very dusty place, uh, that is not easy to pull off. And so uh, this was John Usoni's way of showing himself to be high class. You know, I can keep everything clean and I have these rich white things that are pristine and I don't need to do work so they don't get dirty. So this was kind of John Usoni's um, uh, mode, shall we say. So this one doesn't show him that way, um, but this is he's like this in other suttas. Actually, he's in MN39, the one that I referenced for Evie, and has the white, I think he has the white there. Um, so this one, he comes and he asks a question, or at least in the Bhikkhu Bodhi version, it's a question. It sounded like in the Sujato, it wasn't quite a question, but essentially he comes and presents the idea uh, that people who um, have faith, who go forth out of faith to the Buddha, so these would be people who ordain as monks, many of whom were from the Brahmin class, by the way, so he may know some people who did this. Um, do they take uh, the Buddha as their guide, their helper, and follow his example? And he says, yes, that is so. Um, it's true. 
So he essentially says, I'm the exemplar for these people. Um, so then we have John Usoni's concern. <laughs> Would somebody read the next uh, little section? Okay, Kurt. Uh, but Master Gotama, remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest are hard to endure. Seclus seclusion is hard to practice and is hard to enjoy solitude. One would think the jungles must rob a bhikkhu of his mind if he has no concentration. That is so, Brahman, that is so. Remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest are hard to endure. Seclusion is hard to practice and it is hard to enjoy solitude. One would think the jungles must rob a bhikkhu of his mind if he has no concentration. Right, so that's the bhikkhu bodhi version, but I would guess the sujato is similar. So um, John Usoni is a little bit worried that it would be hard to practice. Essentially he says, isn't practice hard? <laughs> isn't it hard to do what you do? And the Buddha says, very brightly, he says, that is so, Brahman, that is so. He, he agrees, yeah, it is hard. Um, especially if one doesn't have any concentration, if the mind is not well-developed. <clears throat> so we have this setup where John Usoni is intrigued by the Buddha, but concerned that it might be kind of hard to practice in that way. And so uh, he hasn't exactly asked a question, but the Buddha is going to explain something to him. The Buddha takes this as a cue um, for, you know, for starting to talk with him. So, um, would somebody go on with the next paragraph? Evie. So, this is so, or before my enlightenment? Um, before my enlightenment. Okay. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I too considered thus. Remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest are hard to endure. The jungles must rub a bhikkhu of his mind if he has no concentration. Okay, so hang on for a moment. So he creates a connection with John Usoni by saying, you know, actually, before I was awakened, I thought the same way. So John Usoni's interested. Uh, the Buddha has said, I used to think like that too. Well, that's pretty interesting to hear from the Buddha. But he's, he makes it clear, this is before I was awake. I used to worry about this just like you do. Um, and so then he goes on um, and says a little bit about, uh, says a little bit more. So, Debbie, would you like to continue reading? Sure. I considered thus, whenever recluses or Brahmins unpurified in bodily conduct resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest, then owing to the defect of their unpurified bodily conduct, these good recluses and Brahmins evoke unwholesome fear and dread. But I do not resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest unpurified in bodily conduct. I am purified in bodily conduct. I resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest as one of the noble ones with bodily conduct purified. Seeing in myself this purity of bodily conduct, I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. Okay, thanks. And again, that's the Bhikkhu Bodhi version. Um, 
So he's, he's not speaking now, you know, he's not saying now I'm enlightened and I don't have trouble in the forest. He's actually talking that he's still talking about how he was thinking even when he was unenlightened. But what he did was at first he had a little concern come up and then he remembered, actually, I have some good qualities. Um, you know, I, I have pure bodily conduct. Um, and so therefore he says, well, then seeing it that way, I found solace dwelling in the forest. So merely by reflection, actually, on his good qualities, he was able to, at first at least, we see what happens later in the story, but at first at least he was able to convince himself that it was okay to go live in the forest. Now, um, there may be something else going on here. Oh, Kurt, do you have your hand up? Okay, go um, ahead. What is meant by bodily conduct? Oh, it means following the precepts or behaving ethically with the body. So not stealing, not killing, not committing sexual misconduct, those kinds of things, which, you know, many, many people can fall in that category. Um, so, yeah, so he realizes, okay, you know, I'm not so bad. Oh, Susan. Does speech fall in there? bodily contact so um uh, the next the next paragraph talks about verbal conduct which would be speech and then there's mental conduct uh, which would be thoughts and so forth so we have we haven't finished all of his litany of the good things that he has which are i i stopped after bodily conduct but there's a bunch more um and i i've considered on reading this that there may be something else going on here, which is namely that um, the Buddha has just said to John Asoni that he, he is a model. You know, people follow my way of doing things. And then John Asoni says, but isn't that hard? And he says, yes, I used to think it was hard, but even before I was awakened, I considered all of my good qualities. And then I was able to go live in the forest. So he's offering a model through his own process of how he thought about things, he's offering a model by which a newly ordained monk might feel okay about going and practicing in the forest. They would have, for instance, taken the monastic vows, so they're purified in the sense of having committed to being a, a bhikkhu. So it's, he's not saying this directly because there's no point. He's talking to John Asoni, who's not ordained, but he's explaining how through his, his speech, he's explaining how somebody could take him as a model and decide that it was okay to go practice in remote jungle thickets, which he encourages. He wants people to do that. So he doesn't want people to be have this unwholesome fear and dread and therefore not, not go out and practice. Um, okay, so then there's a bunch of other wholesome qualities uh, listed that he sort of reflects on in his mind. Um, it's well elided in the Bhikkhu Bodhi version such that it could actually be read through. I'm not sure what Sujato did. Uh, I should have had that open, but I don't. Is it well elided or does he go on and on about all the qualities? So for example, in mine it says, I considered thus, I am purified in verbal conduct, dot, 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 purified in mental conduct, um, and then it goes on to say, um, I'm uncovetous, I have a mind of loving kindness, I am without sloth and torpor, I am peaceful in mind, I've gone beyond doubt, 
I am not given to self-praise and disparagement of others, free from trepidation, few wishes, energetic, established in mindfulness, and possessed of concentration. So he, he goes through, and he, first he says the opposite. People who aren't, don't have these things would probably be afraid, but I am purified in these things, or I have good mindfulness, and therefore uh, it was okay for me to be uh, sitting in the forest. Is it okay if we summarize that section roughly like that? People content with that? Okay. So the what's going on here is um, maybe challenging for Westerners uh, who have been told, don't dwell on your own good qualities. Don't praise yourself. Don't raise yourself up. Um, don't, you know, this is... Uh, the basis for pride is to go around thinking that you're good. Um, so how does this land for you? That the Buddha thought about all of his good qualities and said, I don't have those defects. I have mindfulness, concentration, loving kindness, renunciation. Yeah, Leanne. Uh, he obviously wasn't raised in a puritanical uh, society. <laughs> no, he was not. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a it, it's a really good thing for us, for those of us that have had that too much of that in our backgrounds, to as a way to balance out our minds. Yeah, I mean, he says I'm a model, and this is what he offers as himself as the model, and he, um, yeah. There's a, there are other places in the suttas where it says that we should reflect on our good qualities, and that's considered a way to uplift the mind. Um, <clears throat> if you, and of course, the mind immediately thinks of, well, what about that time last week where I said blah, blah, blah? You know, of course, you know, just like we were talking about earlier, we look for all the defects, right? And not the necessarily the places where things were going okay. <clears throat> but Nonetheless, the implication here is that this is a good thing to do. This banishes fear and dread. It helps you to, what does he say? I found great solace dwelling in the forest. So it's not to be overconfident. When we see later, we'll see later that he's realistic. Um, he does have fear and dread come up. But um, he starts out by reflecting on that. So my encouragement to you is to try this out if you haven't. Um, maybe in your next sitting or something, spend a few minutes at the beginning just reflecting that even to be able to sit on the cushion for half an hour, you have to have a pretty good mind, actually, uh, especially if you can, right, there's a lot of people in the world who can't get to a meditation center, can't sit on that cushion for that long. It would not be possible for the way their mind is. Um, and that's, that's okay. That's the way the karma's flowing. But it's okay to reflect on that and use that as a basis for um, doing your practice. Yeah. Kim? Carol and then Evie. Um, it occurs to me that when I think about good qualities, I am comforted and, and confidence, those feelings arise. But when I'm thinking about mistakes I've made that's more ruminating and getting caught up in my thinking and um, that are obstacles to feeling uh, more at ease and 
so that it makes sense yeah it, it all goes together and all that rumination about what we've done wrong is actually part of restlessness and remorse it's a hindrance <laughs> yeah 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 not that we you know we should remember what we were the mistakes that we've made and have good intentions and you know take appropriate measures if there was harm done i'm not dismissing any of that that's sort of not what the sutta is about but it's more about you know as long as you're in a reasonably good place where you're ready to practice it's good to think about mm. your generosity and your ethics and your loving kindness and your good intentions toward wisdom and the cultivation that you've done already of mindfulness it's fine Okay, oh, I skipped the last one, which is that he says, I'm possessed of wisdom. He says, those other folks are not possessed of wisdom. Okay, I resort to remote jungle thicket resting places as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. Um, I think the next section is sort of goes on in a different direction. So I would rather um, start on that next week. But um, so we're a few minutes early. Are there other... Well, let me think. Yeah, the next one is really the start of a new section. So um, Val, you had a comment. Well, just a few things came to mind, sprang to mind. Um, one of them is what we were talking about. Just makes me think of summarizing it by wholesome versus wholesome, unwholesome thoughts, too. Mm -hmm. Wholesome thoughts, and that brought to my mind about uh, on 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 death, on passing, how one of the things we do as part of a ritual of in, in this, in our lineage is remembering, bringing to mind the merit, bringing to, bringing to mind the good things that we've done in our life. Yeah. It's a very important part of that. So it's kind of interesting. I wanted to ask you about the question. <laughs> I mean, the word, I love it. The word drivelers is in Drivelers it. in the Vikupodi, Bodhi, I know. <laughs> I, I didn't quite find the interpretation. Do you know what he's saying when he says drivelers? Yeah. Is this in the Sujato also? Does he use drivelers? It's in the last one, um, the last thing, reflection. He says, when I considered, I considered thus, whenever recluses or Brahmins, devoid of wisdom, drivelers, resort to remote jungle thick resting places, then they evoke unwholesome fear and dread. He says, but I'm not a driveler. Yeah, so you guys know what drivel is, right? It's kind of, you know, hard to describe, worthless mental chatter kind of stuff. And so, um, and usually of a sort of a complaining or whiny or wimpy kind of nature. Um, and the, the Buddha doesn't have any of that apparently. <laughs> I'm not, I should look up what that poly word is. Yeah, Bruce. Uh, this is a little, I mean, this is a different subject. We, we were taken by the word drivelers too. And I think another translation, I don't remember who, whether it was, whose it was, but it was some, some kind, something like an idiot. I mean, it was. Idiot, yeah, so yeah, cool. Yeah. But um, it's probably yeah, in the foolish category. Yes. So, so what, what I was thinking about was the story that I always like to kind of recall is the story that, and, and who knows if these stories are true, but the Buddha, after being enlightened, is going to find his ascetic friends um, and is on the road and has a very stately appearance and is noticed by a fellow um, wanderer. 
and he says, you know, you 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 look like you're special, like you know, you, you've you've gained some sort of wisdom. Who's your yeah. teacher? And he, at that point, is pretty kind of like this. He says, well, I'm my own teacher, and I have right. my own wisdom, and I, you know, I'm self-enlightened. And the guy kind of just walks off going like, well, you know, ego or something. Right. And, and, he, and, he, and so that's, from that came the insight, well, I've got to teach this differently. And the Four Noble Truths supposedly came from that. So he must have had some, at least it's indicated that he would have had some, some sensitivity about appearing too egoic about this whole and you would have learned quality. by now yeah 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 so that's in there too yeah so i just looked up this poly word it's ala muga i don't know that word so i would have to um is that right do yeah i think it's ala muga okay Unless that's remote. I mean, the word is dupanya, that, but that usually means um, without wisdom. So I'm not sure what he's translating as dribblers exactly. But um, yeah, so the this sutta has a number of things where the Buddha um, is pretty clear about who he is and what accomplishments he has. Um, he is usually willing to say that if it seems useful in the moment. Um, here he was talking with John Usoni, who is a fairly egotistical Brahmin, apparently. Um, but yeah, he's, I guess he's, yeah, he's being clear that this is a way to, he's modeling that you can think about these things about yourself and it's okay. Okay, well, we're just about at the end. We've gotten a good start on this, um, and there's a lot more in it. He's going to talk next time. We're going to go over um, what he does when he does have fear and dread. So despite convincing himself that he should go practice in the forest, and he did find solace there, nonetheless, he has experiences of being afraid, which seem perfectly reasonable when you're out in the middle of a remote jungle thicket. Uh, there's a lot of wild animals in the jungles of India at this time, um, and so and other things that could come upon you. So we'll see how the unawakened uh, bodhisattva handled this, or bodhisattva in Pali. Any last comments to feel complete? All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Remember that there's a different link. Those of you who came in later, you'll, it's not the same link for next week. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Kim. Nice to see everybody. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.